This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Some stories for you on this episode will tell a tale on how Amsterdam's Sanford family, known locally for making carpets and raising thoroughbred horses, also had an effect on Hollywood, inspiring a classic 1938 film that starred Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. But we'll begin with the story some of us remember, an effort by the Mohawk Nation to come back to the Mohawk Valley in the 1950s. We need your financial support for the Historian's Podcast. We have a GoFundMe campaign. If you visit GoFundMe.com 2019 The Historians, you can donate online. If you want to donate by mail, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. The Mohawk Encampment of 1957. A group of Mohawk Indians occupied land near the Schoharie Creek on the south side of the Mohawk River in Fort Hunter in 1957, June of that year, and remained there until they were evicted by court order in the spring of 1958. The settlers were led by Chief Standing Arrow, also known as Frank Johnson. The 1957 encampment was meant to repossess part of an 8,000-acre tract the Mohawks said was not included in land they ceded to the U.S. government uh, by the Iroquois Confederacy in the Fort Stanwix Treaty of 1784. Their land claim was based on a 1924 document from attorney E.A. Everett that also praised the governmental system of the Iroquois Confederacy, which included the Mohawks and other tribes. According to historian Hugh Donlan, there was talk of some 3,000 Mohawks coming to the 1957 settlement from the Mohawk reservations on the Canadian border with northern New York. That large influx never happened. However, the Mohawks along the Schoharie fought vigorously in court when, for example, charged for hunting without a license, contending they didn't need a state license to hunt on their own land. The hunters ultimately paid a $10 fine. Chief Standing Arrow was fined for operating a motor vehicle without a license, Despite his contention, he did not need a New York State driver's license. At first, landowner Elmer Buckman, a dairy farmer, did not object to the Mohawk encampment on his land. He was quoted as saying the encampment was all right as long as the Mohawks, quote, did not make any trouble. But as time passed, Buckman retained a lawyer to get his land back and the Mohawks expanded their settlement to land owned by farmer William Dufel. The Mohawks built a longhouse and small dwelling units. The scene became a tourist attraction in the summer of 1957, visible from the new Thruway Bridge over the Schoharie Creek. That ill-fated bridge collapsed 30 years later, killing 10 people. During Tropical Storm Irene in 2011, a pickup truck driver died in the vicinity of the former encampment when his truck was overtaken by water from the overflowing creek. A famous visitor. In October 1957, 
Four months after the Mohawk encampment began, world-renowned man of letters Edmund Wilson played a visit to Chief Standing Arrow. Wilson described the encounter in his 1959 book, Apologies to the Iroquois. Wilson found that Standing Arrow was part of an Iroquois nationalist movement with adherents at the Onondaga Reservation in the Syracuse area and at reservations in northern New York and Canada. In the book, Wilson also reports on meetings with other Indian nationalists. Descended from an upstate New York family named Talcott, Wilson maintained a summer home in Talcottville, north of Utica, in Lewis County, between the Adirondacks and Tug Hill Plateau. He died in 1972. Before going to the Mohawk encampment, Wilson met with reporters from the Recorder in Amsterdam, including historian Donlan. Wilson also gathered information from the county archives. When Wilson arrived, Chief Standing Arrow was away, and his family was not willing to communicate. On a second visit, Wilson knocked at the door, and no one came. When the author was getting back in his car, Standing Arrow suddenly appeared in the doorway and waved to him. Wilson said, quote, It was a characteristic of an Indian that not being up and dressed, he should not shout that he would be out in a minute, but should wait until he could present himself with dignity. Inside, the hut was, Wilson said, small, but not ill-kept. There was a landscape of a lake hanging on the wall, along with a feathered headdress and a rattle made from the shell of a snapping turtle. Wilson and Standing Arrow, a former chief from the St. Regis Reservation, and they talked for some time, and Wilson said that Standing Arrow was a charismatic figure. Wilson wrote, A Mohawk who disapproved of Standing Arrow told me that his eloquence in English, of which his command was imperfect, was nothing to his eloquence in Mohawk. Although Wilson had heard unfavorable things about Standing Arrow, he was won over by the chief, saying he appeared to the imagination and appealed to the imagination. Wilson said Standing Arrow's features reminded him of the young Napoleon, even though he had a slight cast in one eye. Wilson also wrote, He had, as I could see, some of the qualities of the Mussolinian spellbinder. Wilson learned that some of the men in the settlement were high steel workers who had labored that year on the Thruway Bridge over the Schoharie Creek. Most of them had gone back to Brooklyn after the summer construction season. The Mohawks are excellent working on tall construction projects. Walking on a narrow beam high in the air is something they do very well. Wilson's book includes a chapter by another author, Joseph Mitchell, from 1949, who wrote A Study of the Mohawks in High Steel, describing the lives led by Mohawks in New York City who worked on skyscraper construction. Eviction. Montgomery County Sheriff Alton Dingman served the first eviction notices on the Mohawk settlement along the Schoharie Creek in January 1958. Since Chief Standing Arrow was not in camp at the time, his notice was nailed to the Longhouse. The winter was a tough one, 
and snow covered part of the encampment that housed some 40 people at that point, according to a Daily Gazette report. Sheriff Dingman and two officers parked on Route 5S and trudged through the snow to serve the legal papers at the settlement located south of the highway. The Salvation Army had provided some assistance to the residents at Christmas in the form of food and clothing. In March 1958, 25 people were reported still living at the Schoharie Creek Indian site. After a court hearing that month that resulted in another eviction order, some of the Mohawk huts were burned. The encampment ended soon after that. The Mohawks were offered land in the town of Fulton in Schoharie County as an alternative site in the area, but if there was a settlement there, it was short-lived. Historian Hugh Donlin wrote, The dufal cornfields between Fort Hunter and Orysville were again in high stock production during the following summer. A new settlement. In September 1993, a group of traditional Mohawks moved into Kanajohelegi, a settlement in Yosts, west of Fonda, on Route 5. Located on the north side of the river, at the former site of a county adult home, Kanajohelegi continues as a not-for-profit corporation. It purchased the property from Montgomery County. The name of the settlement means the place of the clean pot. It is a place to which many American Indians and others travel to learn the Mohawk language and otherwise preserve heritage. They have festivals in the summer and a shop at the site selling Native American crafts. Chief Thomas Porter, whose Mohawk name means the one who wins, was the founder and is the spiritual leader of Kanajohelegi. Porter is a member of the Bear Clan of the Mohawk Nation, and he is a nephew of Frank Johnson, Chief Standing Arrow. Amsterdam's Sanford family inspired a classic motion picture. Amsterdam's Sanford family is famous around here for making carpets and raising fast thoroughbred horses that often race at Saratoga. But the Sanfords once inspired a Broadway play that became a major motion picture starring Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. Gertrude Sanford Legendre's New York Times obituary said the three children of John and Ethel Sanford, Gertrude, Laddie, and Sarah Jane, were the inspiration for the 1929 Philip Berry Broadway stage play Holiday, which was adapted into two movies in the 1930s. You may recall that Philip Berry also wrote The Philadelphia Story. John Sanford had inherited an estate worth an estimated $40 million when his father, an industrialist and thoroughbred horse breeder, Stephen Sanford, died in Amsterdam in 1913. That was a tremendous amount of money at the time. Gertrude was the youngest in the family. She was born in 1902 in South Carolina, but spent time growing up with her two siblings at the family's New York townhouse on East 72nd Street 
and their Amsterdam mansion on Church Street, which was donated by the Sanfords for use as the City Hall in 1932 and is still the City Hall today. In the 1938 movie, the fictional family has a fourth-floor playroom for the children. The Sanford family actually had a playroom on the third floor of their Amsterdam mansion. In real life, Gertrude Sanford enjoyed big game hunting and married explorer Sidney Legendre. She was a beautiful woman, and she was also a spy for the American government during World War II in France. Captured and held by the Nazis for six months, she escaped by train to Switzerland. Her husband died in 1948, but Gertrude Legendre lived until the year 2000, passing on at age 97. She made her home at Medway, a plantation near Charleston in South Carolina, where she held a New Year's Eve costume ball for 50 years. The movie character, Linda Seaton, played by Katherine Hepburn, is a strong-willed woman based on Gertrude Sanford Legendre. Hepburn was the understudy for that part on Broadway. Laddie Sanford usually went by that nickname, but he was officially named Stephen after his grandfather, who doted on him. The holiday character Ned Seaton, portrayed by Lou Ayers, is loosely based on Laddie. More a horseman than industrialist, Laddie was born in 1899 and became an international polo-playing star. He married stage and screen actress Mary Duncan in 1933. Actress Marion Davies, the mistress of media tycoon William Randolph Hearst, introduced Duncan to Sanford after a polo match. The Sanfords lived an active social life, mainly in Palm Beach, Florida. Laddie, who passed away in 1977, and Mary, who died in 1993, are both buried at Green Hill Cemetery in Amsterdam, adjacent to the former Sanford Mansion. The holiday film character, Julia Seaton, played by Doris Nolan, is based on the third Sanford sibling, Sarah Jane Sanford. Named for her grandmother, Sarah Jane was married in 1937 to Signor Mario Panza, an Italian diplomat who served in Mussolini's government, who was also a polo player. The Panzas lived in Italy during World War II, but Sarah Jane was back in America in 1946 after her husband drowned in a swimming accident near Rome. Sarah Jane died in 1985 and is buried at Greenhill Cemetery. The late University at Albany film history professor Rob Edelman, who lived in Amsterdam, was impressed with the 1938 movie Holiday. Put forth in Holiday, he said, is the idea that money isn't everything. Continuing with a quote from Rob Edelman, what matters in life is to live as you see fit. Do not be a slave to the almighty dollar. Life is short. Live, have fun, and keep the child alive within you. There was an earlier film adaptation of Holiday, released in 1930. 
In that version, directed by Edward Griffith, Anne Harding played Linda Seaton, Monroe Owsley portrayed Ned Seaton, and Mary Astor was Julia Seaton. Three Voices of the Mohawk Valley Let's start with one of the voices who was known for the radio, Richard W. Stander Sr. of Johnstown, who almost made it to his 101st birthday, was a caller to radio talk shows from the 1960s until shortly before his death in April of 1933. Born in 1892 in Newark, New Jersey, Ritchie worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. He and Alice Stahl of New York City married about 1923. They became caretakers for a wealthy homeowner, but had to leave that job when their son was born. Apparently the wealthy homeowner uh, didn't want them to have any children. Ritchie then operated a farm stand in Westchester County. John D. Rockefeller himself stopped by and gave Ritchie a Rockefeller trademark dime to present to his son. The Standers moved to Ames, south of Canajoharie, and raised vegetables. Hearing that a Johnstown greenhouse had been abandoned, Ritchie refurbished it. He couldn't find a buyer, so the Standers went into the flower business in the 1940s on North Perry Street. By 1980, when I started hosting WGY's nighttime talk show, Ritchie already was an on-air phenomenon. Bill Miller, my predecessor at WGY, had started a feature called Talent Night. Ritchie played harmonica, musical saw, sang, and yodeled over the phone. His dog Astra barked along. In 1981, a taxpayer group honored Ritchie at a dinner in Fultonville. There were other dinners, once he came to WGY to co-host the talk show. Ritchie frequently remarked that such experiences were too good for the poor. Rabbi Samuel Bloom, who was also known for his work on the radio. Samuel A. Bloom, who went on to be Congregation Sons of Israel's rabbi for 39 years, came to Amsterdam in 1949. Bloom was born in Savannah, Georgia, where he attended high school. He was ordained at Beth Joseph Rabbinical Seminary in Brooklyn and earned a doctorate at New York University. Rabbi Bloom was heard weekly over WCSS radio for 30 years. The rabbi's son, physician Michael Bloom, wrote, I remember vividly accompanying him as he recorded the tapes for his weekly radio show and how hard it was for me to be perfectly silent as I sat next to him. Apparently, none of the recordings has survived, although members of the Bloom family have searched for them. Active in community affairs, Rabbi Bloom was president of the local clergy association and headed United Way campaigns. His wife, Eleanor Golub Bloom, was executive director of United Synagogue of America for the Capital Region. She died in February 1988, and Rabbi Bloom died in July of that year. Judge Raymond Zirak Born in 1914, Raymond J. Zirak 
grew up on Reed Hills Hibbard Street in Amsterdam. His parents, Albert and Mary, worked in the carpet mills. His father died when he was young, and his mother later married Louis Zajakowski. Zirak worked his way through Union College and Albany Law School. He served as a lieutenant with the Marine Corps in the Pacific in World War II. He married Lucy Drewicki from Amsterdam in 1942. Raymond and Lucy settled on Locust Avenue, raised a son and two daughters. His legal practice focused on the Polish community, as Zirak was fluent in Polish and Polish-Americans trusted him. Zirak was elected to city court when its work consisted of civil cases. After 24 years on that part-time bench, Zirak became an assistant to New York Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz. Zirak did legal work for the Polish consulate in New York City and helped Americans with legal issues in Poland. Judge Zirak was known, though, as a speaker. He spoke at events and also emceed events honoring veterans, functions put on by the Republican Party, and organizations ranging from St. Luke's Lutheran Church to the Soapbox Derby. He wrote speeches on a yellow legal pad while sitting at the family's dining room table. He enjoyed playing piano. Zirak's wife died in 1999. The judge passed away in 2006. Future movie star liked a good donut. Izzy Dembski, who became the actor Kirk Douglas, went to Vitalich's Bakery in Amsterdam from time to time in the 1930s. He liked donuts. Virginia Vitalich O'Brien also remembered that when she was attending high school at St. Mary's Institute during the Great Depression, she had an in with the basketball team because of her family's business. Her father, John, would give his youngest daughter the key to the 63 Guy Park Avenue store when St. Mary's played at home. After the game, Vidge, as she was called, led a parade of basketball players and girlfriends to the bake shop where they enjoyed the treats inside. It helped with my popularity, said O'Brien, shortly before her death in 2010. Her father was a native of Austria, who came to America with his parents at age 14 in 1898. Born into a family of seven, he and his wife, Josephine Guffrey Vidalich, also had seven children. Josephine was a native of Genoa, Italy. Vidalich was baking in Amsterdam by 1919. In 1930, John and his brother Anthony opened the 63 Guy Park Avenue Bakery. Eventually, John became sole proprietor. Donuts were cream-filled, jelly-filled, or plain. Plain donuts were three for a nickel. Vitaliches also featured Charlotte Russe, pumpernickel and other breads, sticky buns, coffee cake or kuchen, plus special kuchen for Christmas and Easter. In addition to his shop on Guy Park Avenue, near the former junior high, John Vitalich operated another bakery for some years on Market Street in the Rialto building. His brother Nicholas was proprietor of a bakery 
at 300 Locust Avenue, and his brother Martin operated the V&T Bakery, also near the old Junior High, on Guy Park Avenue. In 1953, John Vitalich's health declined. The bakery was taken over by his son, John Jr. The father died that year. John Jr. relocated to the corner of Glen and Lincoln Avenues on Market Hill. A popular item in newspaper ads from the 1960s were Vitalich's chocolate donuts. The bakery closed in 1971, and John Jr. went to work at Dandy Donuts at 169 Market Street after selling his equipment to the new company. The matriarch of the family, Josephine Guffrey Vitalich, died that year. In addition to his baking skills, John Jr. was a well-known local golfer. His brother, Larry Vitalich, was golf pro at the Antlers in Fort Johnson, the Amsterdam Muni, and ultimately at the North Shore Country Club in the Chicago area. John Sr.'s daughter, Virginia Vitalich, remember her? She was the one who had the in with the basketball team because of the donut shop. Well, Virginia Vitalich married Richard O'Brien of Glens Falls when he was a student at Dartmouth College. They lived in Saratoga Springs. Virginia worked for many years in press relations and other jobs for the Saratoga Harness Track. She conducted tours for school children in the morning hours. She received kudos from Amsterdam sports columnist Art Hafes in 1968 for her role in Howard Tupper's television coverage of the harness track on WRGB television. That was a very popular feature on TV way back then. For 20 years, She was the director of the Saratoga Harness Hall of Fame, and she was the first woman named to the communications corner of the National Horse Racing Hall of Fame, which is in Goshen, New York. Amsterdam resident Diane Hale-Smith visited O'Brien shortly before she died and took her sticky buns from a then-new but now-closed Amsterdam bakery, Dolce, on Bridge Street. They got her personal seal of approval, said Smith. I hope you've enjoyed our stories on today's Historians podcast. Most of these stories appeared in the Daily Gazette newspaper in my Focus on History column, and some of them are in one or the other of my three history books, Stories from the Mohawk Valley, Hidden History of the Mohawk Valley, and Lost Mohawk Valley. Uh, Dave Green uh, continues uh, with me. He was our announcer uh, voice on this program. And, and Dave, I did get a lot of reaction to the donut shop story. People seem to remember donut shops. Do you remember if there was a, a donut shop that uh, in your central New York uh, boyhood? Bob, when the sugar was calling, it was anybody's donut shop. <laughs> I see. So you liked all of them. Yeah. And I guess I, I would need to go with maybe Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, I know that's not from the past at all. I know, but people love the dunker. Oh, yeah. And also, we did a piece on the movie Holiday, uh, which came out in 1938. You watch a lot of old movies. You ever see that one? No, I never did see it, but I'm going to be looking for it. Well, you have been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.